We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week as I introduce you to a hero, a freedom fighter, a veteran, a warrior, an immigrant, and other inspiring Americans living their American dreams with one common thread. They love America. In this podcast, we talk about the hard things, emotional and physical scars, PTSD, real challenges, and how they not only weathered the storms, but rose above the clouds to become stronger and better. Be assured, we laugh too. What is life without a bit of humor? These stories confirm what our founding fathers believed. America is truly a special place for a special people, and you are part of this great story. We the people, our American story is your podcast find yourself in this space every week a place where American values are cherished and treasured a place where we celebrate each other a place you belong it's been a rough week you know, just had a little PTSD lapse I've been dealing with I had to go to the VA to pick up a new thing of meds real quick I was like man and the weird thing you know I've been dealing with it so long now I see it coming from way off and it's been coming. I was like, well, here it comes. I wish there was more I could do, you know, to really just hit the brakes on it. But, you know, it just, it's a roller coaster. In this episode, my guest Dexter, a black conservative, shares with us his views on racism, colorism in black communities, slavery, ancestral trauma, our founding fathers, BLM, and so much more. Among his many roles, Dexter can include U.S. Army infantryman, border patrol, police officer, and most importantly, husband and father. Dexter is unabashed about his love for America and will talk about things that most people are unwilling or afraid to discuss. This episode does contain graphic language. This is Dexter's American Story. Dexter Pitts is a proud Purple Heart recipient and medically retired U.S. Army veteran. He proudly served in Iraq with the 10th Mountain Division and is a graduate of American Military University with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. After serving his country in a time of war, Dexter exchanged his military fatigues for a police officer uniform. He has continually served his community as a law enforcement officer for over a decade and a one-year tour of duty as an agent with the United States Border Patrol on the Southern Arizona border. Having struggled all of his life trying to find his own identity, Dexter became submerged in the battle between his conservative values, black skin, and PTSD. Despite the obstacles that have befallen him, Dexter stands unshakable in his faith and identity as a proud American patriot who believes in the promises of America. This is a short bit of a synopsis of an autobiography written by Dexter Pitts. I am Pitts. I am excited to welcome to the podcast today, Dexter Pitts. Dexter, welcome. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I am doing fabulous. I am thrilled that you reached out to me. Your book has a lot of good information in there. You have covered so many different facets of your life that I am really excited to get going with this. 
if we may, can you start at the beginning? You had a good childhood until, until you had to move or until you moved. So can you take us through that, what you remember about your childhood and then moving and what happened at that point? Yeah. So uh, born in Fort Knox, Kentucky, I was raised in the military. I am the army brat of army brats, you know? And so for me growing up in the military, even though my family was black and we're originally from Mississippi, I was never around like black people all the time and black culture diversity was the norm for me that was all I've ever known since birth I mean we lived in Germany in 89 I mean we moved all over the place I had friends I didn't really have black friends white friends they were just friends and then my father retired from the army in 1997 and we were right next door to Fort Knox and we moved to Radcliffe which is still a military community because it was right outside the gate but things changed and I remember getting on the bus one of my first days of school as a, in the civilian world and I see these black kids at the back of the bus and I'm like man they were all going to be friends and the next you know they just opened up the floodgates on and just started joking on me cracking on me and I mean it was other black kids making fun of me for being so dark-skinned I never realized that my skin was as dark as it was because it was never a thing or never brought up but all of a sudden I just found myself the laughing stock of the entire bus and the laughing stock of the other black kids black kids making fun of me for me being black really it really blew my mind it really crushed me when I read that in the book because bullying you hear so much about it today and to hear everything that you went through and you did not really fight back did you no see I was terrified as a kid I was not the tough guy I tell everybody I'm not the guy that was always big muscle and I was just ready for a fight. I was a mama's boy. I was spoiled. So I remember I just started crying. I would constantly go home and cry to my mom about what's going on. And at one point I even stopped telling her what was going on. I was just kind of taking it. But with me, I'm the type of guy, you can push me around so long, but eventually you back me into a corner and then I'm going to lash out eventually. And that's what I did. Thank God I never got that opportunity to, but I remember on the bus, the kids were like, you know, somebody had stole my jacket and I told my mom and we went and got my jacket back from the kid that stole it. Word got around school was like, oh, you a snitch, man. You a snitch. No, we got something for you. We got something for you after school. You know, I remember going home, getting on the bus. They were, they were, the kids weren't on the bus. And then I remember the next day thinking like, you know what? They coming for me. If you coming for me, you know what? I'm going to make you earn it. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember I armed myself with like a bike lock. I put around my neck a pool ball with a sock and a blade in my pocket. And I got on the bus and I'm remember seeing the kids come onto the bus and in my mind, I was like, should I ambush them or should I wait for the attack? And for some odd reason, I don't know why they didn't say nothing to me, man. They just kind of went away. <laughs> how old were you at this time and how long did the bullying last? Oh man, we, I guess I was, I say 12, 13 years old. I mean, this went on for, I mean, months, probably most of, I'll say probably most of the school year. Oh my gosh. How did you make yourself go to school? Were you sick to your stomach every day when you had to go to school? All the time. And, oh and, my and gosh. for me, you know, my mom was very supportive of me, but she, there was no way I, I, I wasn't missing school for anything. She was like, you better be dead. You ain't missing school. But a lot of people don't realize that I talk about it in my book. My mom, who's from Mississippi, she had a lot of trauma growing up in Mississippi. My mom was used to be dark skinned like me. And I never knew that. But I remember looking at my mother's pictures one day, like, Hey, mom, you were dark skin. How did you become light skin? 
And the next thing you know, she tells me that she bleached her skin over the years. And so my mom takes me to Walmart and shows me the cream that she used. And I go and try to start bleaching my skin. But I eventually stopped doing it just probably just because I was 12, 13, you know, just other stuff to do. I, I didn't really think about it no more, but I stopped. And a lot of people look at that like, well, that's jacked up on your mother's behalf. But you have to understand my mother's story to understand why she did that. She didn't do that as a thing to hurt me. She did that as a thing to help me. And in my mind and her mind, me having light skin would have probably made my life a little easier and a little better because back in Mississippi growing up what she did, light skinned people were treated different and better than the dark skinned people. You know, that's really interesting because I just read a book on George Washington and the slaves that were there, the lighter skinned ones were in the house and the darker mm -hmm. skinned ones were out in the field. Why do you think that is? Why is dark skin in that black community? Why is dark skin looked upon as being not as equal? A lot of people don't realize is the Willie Lynch letters in slavery. So you have a slave master. He's probably got about, you know, how many hundred slaves? It's just him and his little small white family. The last thing he needs is for the slaves to join together. Be like, hey, you're not light skinned. I'm not dark skinned. We just black. Let's get together and take these fools out. And so the best way to keep the slaves from coming together, uniting, it was finding small trivial things to keep them separated. So that's when they separated them amongst color. And then that's when you had the ones that worked inside, the light-skinned slaves, the house Negroes, or the, you got the dark-skinned slaves that worked out in the field, the field Negroes. And then there was always this animosity. The guys on the inside think they're better than the people on the outside, and the guys on the outside think they're better and work harder than the people on the inside. I tell people slavery is over, but that does not mean that the remnants of slavery do not exist in this country still. It floats around. It, that is why we still have issues such as that within the Black community of colorism and the whole light skin versus dark skin thing. You know, now, I'm way over that. Now that I'm a 37-year-old man with my own family, you know, I, people tell me jokes. I'm like, okay, bro, especially during the riots and protests, I was like calling me Blackie and I'm like, dude, listen, I've been here for 37 years. You're not getting to me. Trust me, you know, but it's still so prominent within the community. Because I said that trauma gets passed down. Trauma, the traumas we're suffering now is traumas that my great, 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 great grandparents suffered. And it still gets passed down. But as I've said, that is stopping with me and my family, my kids. My kids will not know that trauma. My daughter's got beautiful dark skin. And I tell her every day she's beautiful. And I have to tell her, like, you know, especially during the protests and riots, the protesters were, you know, these white people don't care about you. These white men out here are evil. I'm not worried about the KKK. I'm worried about my daughter and her perception of how she's going to be accepted by people that look like her. That because she's got a little darker skin or she might think different politically than them. That's where the battle's going to be. It ain't with the KKK. It ain't with the white supremacists. Are they here? Yeah, but I've been around a long time and I tell people I've not run into any of them in a really long time. Did you experience racism as a child then with white people? I'm sure you did. You know, so I tell people, I, there were bits and pieces where it happened, and it, it was not a ongoing, regular thing. You know, I remember when I was with my father, at a, my, dad, my dad retired from the Army, started driving trucks. And, it, and I remember we went to this truck stop, I think it was somewhere in the South, maybe Tennessee. And there's you know, a bunch of white people in here in this little country truck stop. And, it, and I go to get some food, and the guy looks at me, he's like, mm. we ain't got nothing for you on the menu, boy. You know, and I'm like, 
well, everybody else is eating, you know, like, like why, why can't I eat? This to me, racism, I didn't know what that was. And I told my dad, and I remember my dad looked at me like, come on, let's go. And I was like, but, but dad, but dad, and, you know, he's like, son, let's go. And I remember it's the first time my father really talked to me and kind of explained to me the whole racism thing. And I was like, that's strange. <laughs> like I said, that was not the norm for me. I never saw black and white. It was just people to me. That's all it was. I mean, even when we went to Mississippi to go visit my family during the summer, it was always just, oh, these are my family. You know, my family, they look like me. Cool. Oh, there's these other kids. They look different to me. All right. Cool. It was never a thing. The times I've been called a, the N-word by somebody growing up, very few in between, was not often. How sad is that, though, that there's that division between the Black community? <clears throat> Yeah, it's sad, but it's become the norm and it's accepted because that's what it's always been. It's wrong. We don't talk about that. Nobody talks about it. The scars I suffered from that as a kid, I carried that with me and the hurt and anger for many years. Always wondering how come I'm not accepted. You get through that bullying part and did it get better in high school then? Were you okay? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, there were still I got a little tougher in high school when I realized I was much bigger than everybody else. I was I about to say that because <laughs> how tall are you, Dexter? I must say I'm six foot, but <laughs> don't tell nobody, but I'm actually like 5'10", five, 5'11". Five, <laughs> okay. But you're not a skinny weakling. As I look at you, no. you have a broad build. You're not a I tiny do. I person. Do. You did not have that belief in yourself to stand up for yourself. It took you a while. Oh, yeah, it took me a long time. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even after I became an adult, I was just so adverse to conflict so afraid of conflict because i just want to get along with everybody not do and say whatever to get along to fit in and and, and, just to be cool and be friends with everybody when did you decide hmm maybe the military is for me and i know that your mom was not very excited (laughs) about that that she was "Eh, i don't think that's probably the way to go right yeah and you know so i tell people growing up in the military i didn't hate the military but i just hated the fact that i was always moving and having to start over i'm not ever joining the military i don't want anything to do with the military period and so 9 11 happens and then something in me starts to wake up but it was not until i went and watched the movie black hawk down which came out i think the month after 9 11 and i was like oh man these dudes running around on the screen these rangers they carrying weapons shooting and blowing stuff up War combat looks so glorious. I want a part of that glory. So I was like, man, I'm joining Army Infantry. I'm going to become a Ranger. That did not scare you at all? God, no. I would have been terrified. I'm like, I'm not. I don't want to get shot. You know, but that's the allure of Hollywood. Hollywood just makes everything look so great, so glorious. You got guys running with the rifles, running through the smoke and explosions popping off around them. And And the symphony behind them. Did you see the symphony symphony behind you, Dexter? (laughs) Guys with the violins, you know, playing. That's right. Got all the cool sayings. Follow me. I wanted that to be me. Oh, that's funny. You were junior or senior? Yeah, I think I was a junior when 9-11 happened. Yeah, and I remember going to the recruiter's office like, yo, put me in the game, man. I'm ready to rock. <laughs> and you had to have your mom's signature, right? Yeah, well, she didn't sign off. So lucky for me, well, I guess lucky for me, but due, due to all the moving around when I was little, I got held back in the second or third grade. So by the time I was a junior, I was already going on 18. So I went down to the recruiter's office, signed up, and I didn't have to have my mom's signature. She expressed her 
dislike for what I was doing. It was, there was no stopping me. I mean, my parents, friends would try to talk to me. Well, you could go in, but anything but infantry, anything but the infantry. I was like, now nah, if I'm going in, I'm going to fight, man. I want to be with the guys going in first. And I remember asking my recruiter, I wanted the Ranger contract. Now, little secret to you all. I did not score very high on my ASVAT test. Could I have scored higher if I tried again? Yes. But I was impatient and I was under the belief that the war was going to be over before I got in. And I was like, man, hey, give me the waiver, the ASVAT waiver, put me in the game. Let's go. I still ended up having to wait a year because I had to graduate. But hey, if you want to fight 10th Mountain Division, that's where you need to go. I was like, well, then that's where I'm going. Oh, my gosh. How did your dad feel about you joining? My dad was always very, very quiet, reserved, man. So old school black guy from the South. He was just very stoic, never really changed emotions. You know, I just know his one thing was, well, you about to be grown. You ain't staying your black ass here. <laughs> you gotta, you know, that, that's pretty much what the consensus was. <laughs> well, when did you go into basic then? That was pretty soon after graduation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I graduated, I believe, June 4th of 2003. I was shipped off to Army Infantry One Station Unit training in Fort Benning, Sand Hill on August 5th, 2003. And how were the nerves? Oh, my God. I just, man, when I got on the bus, we were pulling up. I was like, oh, my God, this is probably a horrible ideal. <laughs> horrible ideal. <laughs> how did you find basic? I am not the tough guy, and I've never been, but... I'm athletic. Lord knows I was not built to run. My God, you can give me a rucksack and I can walk a hundred miles. When it comes to running, it was tough. And, and the one thing I always tell everybody about boot camp before I left, all my dad's friends and my ROTC teacher was like, they had the saying, be the gray man, be unnoticed, Dexter. Don't finish first. Don't finish last. Just be the middle. They shouldn't even know your name by the time you're done. And I get there and I'm looking around. I'm like, I'm like one of four black guys here, dude. And, and I was a fat body. I was overweight. So they keyed in on me <laughs> from day one. Day one, they picked me out the crowd. And then they saw my, my lack of running ability. I was in the C group. And they were like, oh, God, yeah, this guy. Was it in basic that you had a drill sergeant or someone who did not like you? Was that in basic? Or no, he, my, dr yeah, my drill sergeants liked me. They always messed with me. We had a drill sergeant. Uh, I believe it was a drill sergeant Hill. He was a tall, skinny black guy. He was from actually from Louisville, Kentucky, from around the area I was. And so he'd always call me Private Blue. If y'all don't know who Blue is, Blue is the bear from the Jungle Book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anytime he would see me, he'd be like, Blue, Private Blue, when I come into the room, you better start singing the bear necessities every time I see you. So we'd be at standing at attention and in would walk Drill Sergeant Hill. And then I would start singing, it's just the bare necessities the simple bare necessities <laughs> private blue drop down and give me 25 <laughs> did things get less difficult for you through basic as you conditioned i struggled from beginning to end and i remember it was my last pt test i had not passed i passed everything on pt test up to that point except the run and i was yeah. missing the run by like 30 40 50 seconds and I was like I just couldn't do it this was and, your last shot I, wasn't it this was my last shot and I just remember I was like man I'm going all out and I remember my next door neighbor Mr. Johnson was like let me tell you something Dexter don't come back here without having finished boot camp we would all be ashamed of you and, they, and I just remember that in the back of no my pressure. mind yeah no pressure they, I just ran and I remember the bible verse my mom taught me the lord give you wings and you'll run like an eagle and they, I was just going man 
pushed and pushed and pushed, and they called that time. I'll never forget that time. Pitts, 14-15. I was like, oh, thank God I made it. What did you have to beat? It, it was, uh, I believe it was 14-50, I believe. It made me so mad just seeing some of these guys that could naturally run. You know, they finished in like 10 minutes. I'm like, that ain't even fair, man. <laughs> I'm not a and runner I, either. I hate it. You know, and these guys, you know, they smoke and all this stuff. And I just see guys and they, they just dusting the PT test like it's nothing. Here, I'm putting in real effort and struggling still. <laughs> what happened after basic? Where do you go? So after basic, I do the stereotypical army private thing and get married to my high school sweetheart and my <laughs> dress greens. We make our way up to Fort Drum, New York with the uh, 10th Mountain Division, man, in the middle of the winter. My Lord, let me tell you, I've been cold, but I've never seen cold like that. It was insane. I think it was like negative 20 the first time we oh. went to the field. And where do you go? Do, do you get deployed? Yeah, so before we get deployed, I wanted to be a ranger. It right. was not long after that I realized my running ability, I am not ranger material. This is what I tell everybody. In ranger school, I would not have quit because I'm not a quitter. But I would not have made the standard. Big difference. <laughs> Did that devastate you with that realization? You know, I had the chance to give it a shot, but I passed it up to go get married. And the one regret I've carried with me all these years is I didn't take the chance to go to ranger school. That's what I wanted to do, and I passed it up. And But a close second for me was being assigned to the 10th Mountain Division, uh, 2nd Brigade. I was part of Alpha Company 214, the Golden Dragons. So with the Black Hawk Down movie, a lot of people don't realize that the guys that got sent in to rescue the Rangers was the company and the battalion I got assigned to. So I was like, you know what? This is a close second place. I'm good for it, man. When I got there, they saw how big I was and they made me the assistant gunner. I was the assistant to the machine gunner who carried the 240. I carried the AG gear, which was probably around 25, 30, I can't remember, 30 pounds. And then I carried all the machine gun ammo. So it's 7.62 millimeter ammo. Every 100 rounds is seven pounds. I carried about seven, 800 pounds or seven, 800 rounds of machine gun ammo on me. And then I had my own rifle. And then I had my own gear to carry. So I was a mule. It was miserable. How did you feel as a gunner when you're in there? Because I have talked to a few gunners and they mentioned the G.I. Joe mentality that once you get in there behind that gun, you are the top dog. Did you feel yeah. that way? Yeah. So it, the good thing about Iraq that it was not Vietnam and, and it, we didn't have to carry all our gear with us. So I didn't have to hump the AG gear. And most of the time, me being the lower guy, they put me in the Humvee behind the machine gun. And I remember one day on a patrol when we were in a Baghdad, they were like pits grab the machine out the back of the truck, man. I was so excited and so happy. It just walking around carrying the highest casualty producing weapon on the platoon, knowing that everybody was depending on you. I was waiting for somebody to shoot at us so I could just let this thing rip, man. I was so ready to get into a gunfight. You do all this training and boot camp on all these cadences. What do you want to do? I want to kill. No, I want to taste blood. You know, what makes the green grass grow? Blood, blood, bright red blood. What is that anyway? Is that just nonsense? It is brainwashing. That's what it is. You know, it's hard to kill somebody that you see as a fellow human being. When you're in boot camp, it's not in our human nature to want to kill. When you go in the military, the military exists solely for one reason. People don't realize this. To kill people. That's simply what the military exists for. No other reason. And if you're going to kill people, you have to be in the right mindset for it. You can't be half in and half out. 
I was all the way in. I remember just singing the cadences as I was walking around with the machine gun and itching for a gunfight. First got to Iraq. And it was so weird that we had a guy, Sergeant Pedro. He fought over in Afghanistan in Operation Anaconda. The stories we heard about him over there, he did some pretty crazy stuff and some pretty crazy stuff happened to him. And there was a rumor that, you know, he shot and killed a kid with an RPG. And I just remember sitting in the back of the truck one day with my rifle. I just kept playing with my rifle, just constantly moaning and groaning like, man, when are we going to get into a gunfight, man? I'm tired of sitting here on board. Let's get some action. Sergeant Pedro looked back at me. He was like, you want to get in a gunfight, huh? Yes, sir. You ever been shot at pits? No. You ever seen your friends killed? No. I've been shot at and I've seen my friends killed. He's like, I'm perfectly fine sitting here and I hope nothing happens. Be careful what you wish for, man. That kind of stuck out to me. And it was also another uh, staff sergeant from a, a different platoon, Staff Sergeant Bryant. I remember when we were in Kuwait training to go over, we just got back from the range and we just killed all these paper targets. Like, yeah, yeah, we can, let's go take these insurgents out. Let's do it. And he was like, y'all some real badasses shooting at paper targets, huh? Let's wait till they start shooting back. Like, well, okay, we'll see. <laughs> do you remember? I'm sure you do. Your first gunfight. I told you, I never got in a gunfight. I never got never. in any true ticks. And I was in Baghdad in Abu Ghraib in 2004, 2005. It is so bizarre because that was probably one of the most violent times. And I never got in a gunfight, never got to fire my weapon once. Still a little bitter about it. That is crazy. Yeah, because the insurgents knew they could not fight us. I've been blown up. I've been shot at, but I could not, you know, PID the target. And so there was no, I couldn't return fire. I mean, these guys with these pop shots run off, set off an ID and they scatter. I've been blown up at least three times. Who do you shoot at? When you're being shot at, what is that like? Terrifying. You know, I remember sitting in the turret. It was just up the street from where I got hit on my worst day. We were sitting by a palm tree grove. And I just remember it was real quiet, and super hot. And I remember there's this one single house, like, like far, far, far off in the distance. Hearing a little crack and a zip right by my head. And I dropped down behind the shield. The hell, somebody just tried to kill me. And I remember uh, looking through the side of the shield. And I saw my buddy Millet in the other gun truck. I yelled out to him, hey, Millet. Did you hear that? And he just hit me with the thumbs up. Like, yeah. You have no idea where it's coming from. No way. I know I do where it's coming from. Even more terrifying was the fact that we stayed there. And I remember telling like, Lieutenant, I was like, hey, man, we just got shot at up here. <laughs> we just stayed. I was like, okay. All right. I guess we're doing this then. How long were you there? When I first got to Iraq, we were stationed out of uh, Camp Victory. And we patrolled, I believe it was southeast or southwest Baghdad originally. And that was in the middle of nowhere. It was just, it was just the countryside of Iraq. And I tell you, it was actually beautiful. And it was peaceful, man. I mean, there was really not a lot of action for us. Our Bravo company, they were over in Sauter City in 04. And they got decimated, man. They lost so many people. And I talk about those people in the book that they lost. Private Waters, guys like that, and Brandon Titus. And I, you just remember hearing all these names from Bravo Company. I remember seeing one of their trucks come into the gate as we were manning the ECP one day. And they, and they had like it, the whole windshield was spider web and just bullet holes and pox marks all over the vehicle. Like, dude, what just happened to y'all? Man, we got ambushed. And I was just like, my God, they were literally in the middle of it. We were just out here in the middle of the desert at, you know, rolling around looking for trouble. And I, I would look out for, from our little combat outpost, we uh, we called it O.P. Shaw. We named it after our uh, captain. It, and I would just look off in the distance and you could just see like tracers flying and popping off. Man, I want to get in the middle of that. What? 
It must yeah. be all that testosterone. I don't know it has to be. <laughs> it has to be. That just sounds you know, absolutely it's, terrifying. Tell me, Hollywood made it look so awesome. And I was like, I'm trying to get in a movie with this. Lo and behold, it starts to get real. And we get moved to Abu Ghraib. And I'm sure a lot of people remember what Abu Ghraib, what happened with the prison scandal with U.S. soldiers abusing Iraqi prisoners and taking pictures. So we go to Abu Ghraib around, I think it was October, November 2004. I'm getting what I started to ask for. One of my first patrols in Abu Ghraib, you could just feel the people looking at you, burning a hole with you through their eyes. These people did not like us. I could feel them trying to kill me with their eyes. And it, it was just the most intense feeling ever. We never got any gunfights, but we had a lot of situations that popped off. We thought we we're about to explode into something. And then we started encountering more IEDs, more people getting shot at. And it was just super intense. How long were you there before you came home? We moved to Abu Ghraib uh, right around the same time that uh, it, it was uh, Fallujah kicked off in November. And so we moved around that same time, I guess. I was in, a, in Abu Ghraib for a couple of weeks, and then I went home on R&R. I think it was actually November 28th. It was actually my anniversary, my one-year wedding anniversary, where I actually flew home to go on my two weeks at R&R. Was your marriage okay at this point? You know, it's a marriage, a one-year in between an 18- and 19-year-old. That's all. <laughs> like Forrest Gump, yeah. that's all I got to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Were you ready to go back? Were you thinking about the fight the whole time you were home? Yeah, I was upset. Couldn't focus on being home because we were in Abu Ghraib, which was just east of Fallujah. And Fallujah was just, it was in the middle of it. And I'm like, man, I'm sitting here playing Grand Theft Auto, hanging out at home. And my guys are over there and I'm stuck here. Like, I want to get back into the fight. I took my two weeks and I was pretty much zoned out. I was there, but I wasn't there. My mom was worried about me. And I tell people I had this horrible dream. It was my first night uh, home on R&R. My wife at the time was sitting on the front row in the pew at a church and she was crying. And there was a casket up front. She walks up to the casket and I'm laying in the casket and I'm dead. Got my uniform on me. You know, and she's crying. Somebody walks up and closes the casket. And then I wake up and I'm like, open up, open up. I'm not dead. Please let me out. Please let me out. And then her shaking me and I'm waking me up. Dexter, wake up. You're home. You're home. You're safe. And for me, I took that as a sign that like kind of God giving me a home and like, hey, you're not going to make it back from the second round. And so mentally, I was ready to go back and nail. But at the same time, I just kind of knew like. This you were ain't prepared end well. to not come back. I was prepared to not come back. Were you very tense then every day when you went back? Oh, yeah. I was constantly on my P's and Q's just looking for any little thing out of place. Is this the time where you get hurt? Yes. So I come back to Iraq around but like mid, I guess, yeah, early December, like December, I say December 10th, maybe. And I asked my guys, like, hey, man, what happened when I was gone? And to my surprise, nothing. Like, nobody got hurt. Nothing crazy happened. And I'm like, with Fallujah right next door, nothing happened? Yeah. And they, I was like, all right, man, well, let's get back out here and get at it. I remember my uh, captain, he had something to say to me. Pitts, did you have a good time on leave? I was like, I did, sir. He was like, it looks like it. The vest looks a little tight. <laughs> well, take us back to the day where your injury happens. It was uh, the morning of, well, the day of January 1st. We, we woke up that day and it, it was so weird. You know, it just, 
I could feel something shift in the atmosphere. Something was different about the day. When we went out the gate, I just had this overwhelming feeling that something bad was going to happen the entire day. And I'm a grunt. I'm a tough guy now. I'm like, yo, I'm not going to tell people about this. This is, this is Iraq. Abu Nam, as we call it. Hey, no, it's, it's just normal. You know, so I just continue about my day. I'm on edge and I'm looking around and something just doesn't feel right. You know, so we go back to the same spot we had been at the past two nights. And we were going back to the same spot a third night in a row. And I just had this feeling. I was like, sir, I looked over my lieutenant, like, and I was in the gun truck and I was like, man, we shouldn't be here again. And the one thing that caught my attention was there was this Iraqi house behind us where we were in Abu Ghraib on the side of Rod Huskies. And there was an Iraqi guy that lived there with his family. The first two nights he came out and he gave us tea, chatted us up. It was so nice. And, but for me, I didn't trust this guy. There was something about him. I was like, I don't know this guy. I don't trust him. And, it, and he did it again the second night. Well, we get back the third night. The house is dark. Ain't nowhere, nobody to be found. He's not there. And, and then I just constantly had this feeling like, yo, something's up. And I remember I went to go use the bathroom. And I remember as I was using the bathroom, I had my rifle in my right hand and my, the butt stuck under my arm and my finger on the trigger. And the selector switch because I was like, somebody's watching me right now. I finish up and I go back to the truck. I'm like, LT, we got to go. Like, there's something's not right, man. I don't, uh, something's, something's off. So I tell my buddies and they're like, you know, now that you mentioned it, Dex, something is a little weird. Oh boy, he ain't here tonight, man. And they, so my LT's like, look, bitch, you've been in the gun turret all day. It's hot. Yo, sit down in the driver's seat, take a load off. The clock had just rolled from New Year's to January 2nd. And so it was the early mornings of January 2nd. And so I go sit in the driver's seat and I remember taking off my helmet. And that was the last thing I remembered. It's weird. I tell people, it kind of remember it in two parts. So the first part I originally remember is waking up on the ground, looking at the sky, wondering why I was in so much pain. But a couple of days later, my mind jarred, I get my, a little bit of my memory back. And, and I remember actually waking up in the Humvee. I hear somebody screaming my name. And you know how I talk about I wanted the Hollywood experience. It was yeah. a Hollywood experience out there, an explosion. And it, it was that little ringing in the ear. And I remember opening my eyes and see specks of light inside the vehicle and little small particles of dust floating around. And, and I hear somebody, just like in the movie, Dexter, Dexter. And then it just gets louder and louder. And I try to talk. And I was just so much pain. And I was so hurt. All I could say was, oh, there was literally nothing I could say. And what had happened was, the insurgents who we try to always say, man, these guys are idiots. No, these guys are not. We are in these guys' backyard. These guys are very smart. They knew we were coming back. And when we left, they buried two 155 artillery shells. And before we even parked in that spot again, we cleared that whole area. They did such a good job. We didn't even know it was there. And the one thing team, that haunts me to this day is I always ask, I'm like, God, why am I still alive? Because we were literally, that bomb was literally on under my seat. I took a brunt of the blast on my seat in my door. And I asked God, we were all standing outside my door talking just before the blast. And I'm like, man, was the guy asleep? Was he not paying attention? Was he late getting to a spot? Because if he wanted to, he could have smoked every last one of us and killed at least four of us standing out there that night. But some odd reason, he, it didn't happen. And I will never know. You got to think somebody was watching out for you, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. That's why I say I know there's a God. And I remember just looking at my arm 
thinking to myself, that can't be my arm. It, like my arm had a compound fracture. It didn't go through the skin, but it looked like somebody just went through with a baseball bat and a meat cleaver and just bop, 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 just tore my left arm. It was a mangled mess. And one thing I thought was like, man, I'm getting ready to die. I was terrified looking at the sky because I just knew the stars. And I was like, man, I'm about to be part of that nice sky up there. And I was, and like I said, I knew this was the moment where I started praying. Now I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian man, but you know, when you go to war, you lose those parts of yourself. Like I believe in Christ, but the way I talk, still the way I talk sometimes, but <laughs> it just wasn't that of a Christian, as I guess you could say. And I harbored a lot of anger and hurt and hate with me. And I just started saying the Lord's prayer over and over. And I was ready to die because I was ready to stop hurting. The pain was so bad. Doc, he put my arm in a sling. As they started to pick me up, they dropped me because I was so heavy and I fell back to the ground and I just let out the scream. And Doc's like, Dex, we need you right now, man. We need you. Help us. And I just knew my brothers needed me. And I pushed with everything I had in me to help them get me up and get me to the Humvee. You the had best to walk. Part, yeah, yeah, yeah. With what, as painful as it was, I did. But regardless, I am a well-trained and disciplined infantryman here. The first thing when I got up, I started screaming, where's my rifle? Give me my rifle. There was no way. I don't care what kind of hero I would have been after this, would not. If I returned without that rifle, I knew I was a dead man. That's a chain of command. <laughs> you never leave without your rifle. No, right? God, no, no. If your rifle is an extension of you. Where I go, my rifle go. And it, that was my main concern. Even thinking about my own death, I was like, hey, give me my rifle. Somebody's already got it. I was like, all right, cool. Let me get eyes on it, though, because <laughs> I want to believe you. And it, I just, uh, I was terrified. But they get me in the Humvee and get me back to the... Uh, the cash to come at support hospital in the green zone. And they fly me uh, to, uh, I believe it's LSA Alice Anaconda, uh, but they also called Mortaritaville and, you know, bandaged me up there. And then they sent me on to a uh, Walter Reed or not Walter Reed lawn stool where I had my first surgery. So my entire list of injuries was my left arm was just completely shattered. Uh, my back and hips were blown out of alignment. And I had some, my teeth, my molars were blown, uh, cracked in half. And then like, I, I took a real bad hit to the head because my helmet wasn't on inside the Humvee and just a bunch, like some shrapnel on my back. I didn't know about for like, until like two, three weeks later, you know, so they get me do that first surgery and then they get me to Walter Reed. And was your military career over at that point? Yeah, but the, the writing was on the wall, but you know, I had a whole lot of surgeries to go through and therapy. And it, so I had additionally. Uh, 11 other surgeries at that point after that with two different stints of Walter Reed and I recovered but my left arm was stuck in a 90 degree angle and it still is really? you know, I'm trying to tell Can yeah yeah like yeah that's like you can't no that's it no that's so all what happens it just won't move no it won't move I got a ton of metal in there I actually had the metal plate taken out in uh, 2013 because yeah, it was just coming loose and yeah, I just Man, I so many surgeries, so many. And it's just the thing that almost killed me was I developed a staph infection. Oh, those are bad. Really bad. Yeah. And so I was about to go home after being at Walter Reed for a couple of days for convalescent leave, but my arm was swollen three times the size. And they're like, dude, you get on that plane, you're going to be dead in a couple of days. They believe that the infection had gotten so bad and started spreading to my bloodstream. They believe that it was getting to my heart. And that just started the entire chain of surgery after surgery after surgery called these irrigation and debridements and it was just you know my, my arm was filleted open to let it drain and I could see the inner workings of my arm and it was just horrible but the one thing I always remember being a Walter Reed was seeing the other soldiers in the uh 
physical therapy room trying to recover from their injuries and learn how to walk. I mean, that was just absolutely amazing looking at these guys, man, the focus they had. It was just so awesome. And I don't know if you know Tammy Duckworth. You know who that is? That sounds so familiar. Why does that sound familiar? Who is yeah, that? Well, yeah, so she's a congresswoman out of Illinois, I believe. But I used to rehab with her. And she was uh, the black female Blackhawk pilot that was shot down in Iraq. And lost, she lost both her legs in the crash. Oh, and wow. So I used to chat with her in the hallway and talk with her and help her out periodically. And then seeing her achieve what she has just lets you know how special veterans are. Yeah. All of these wounded warriors that I have spoken to, the amputees, oh my gosh, they are phenomenal, aren't they? They are. They really, they are a special bunch. They just make me feel like a loser. <laughs> oh, no. no. They're the real losers here. If you... <laughs> well, at this point that your marriage is pretty much falling apart because you've shut down. Yeah. And uh, I saw it coming when I was in Iraq. I kind of saw it coming. But... Yeah the way we were corresponding and this, the stress of being married to a wounded warrior is not easy. I mean, your schedule's out of whack. You're not sleeping. It's just not normal. And, and you were so young. Yeah. You know, who we're going to love each other and be together forever. Nothing's ever going to tear us apart. I'll love you forever too, darling. The whole Hollywood thing, you know, everybody thinks <laughs> gone with the wind. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, does your marriage end then? Yeah. Yeah. So my marriage ends after my first didn't want to read. And then I go okay. back to uh, Fort Drum, a single soldier. Is this where Spike Lee's movie comes in? So I get out in 2006. I get fully medically retired. Right before I get out, I go to this program in a, it was in a Belfast, Maine, it's National Theater Workshop for the Handicapped. They were trying to help soldiers heal from their combat wounds. And I go up there you know, and I tell people, it's kind of like boot camp. I was the only black guy for miles. Everybody in the town was just like intrigued with me. <laughs> yeah, sure yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't really want to be an actor, but after uh, HBO was there doing a documentary on that, but then they decided they were going to do a separate documentary called A Live Day Memories Home from Iraq with everybody's favorite James Gandolfini. If you okay. don't know that name, it's yes. Tony Soprano. So they fly me to New York City after I get out and then I shoot the uh, documentary. I was on the set of The Sopranos and James Gandolfini's like, hey, you ever thought about doing acting? Yeah, well, that, you know, it'd be cool. Why not? You know, so next thing you know, I get a phone call from Spike Lee and Spike Lee invites me over to Italy to shoot his movie Miracle at St. Anna with him. Was it? Actually oh, yeah. Really? It was actually him. Yeah, it was kind of weird. You know, hey, let me talk to Dexter Pitt. Yeah, who's this? So I said, Spike Lee. I was like, yeah, quit no, playing. Who is this? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> playing on my phone. Like, no, Jim, James told me to give you a call. I was like, oh, this is real. What was this movie about and what was your experience? Because I know you had a bit of a mind shift during this. I time. did. So the movie Miracle St. Anne is about the Buffalo soldiers in World War II. Amazing. Part fiction and part nonfiction. What happened, the, the Buffalo soldiers actually did fight the Germans on the Circuito River. But the actual storyline about the primavera head from the statue and all that, it was, that was just kind of, it was just a story, but it, they blended that, all that together. And for me, it was the first time I'd been around such strong, positive, encouraging black men growing up, always being teased for being dark skinned. These guys tell me, bro, no, there's nothing wrong with your skin being dark. Man, you got the skin of kings, brother. You got the skin from the motherland. You're like, there's nothing wrong with your skin color in this. The black empowerment, I mean, it was so intoxicating. And I tell people the biggest thing for me is when I got out of the military, I was lost. I lost my tribe. 
my boys were still, you know, going back over to Iraq for their next tour. And I was here playing actor, being Mr. Cool Guy in movies, but I didn't have a tribe. I found my new tribe with the Spike Lee's group and these strong black men. And I went way far deep into the whole black power, black movement thing, man. And from a guy that almost died for his country, loved this country, you know, growing up in the military, it was never about color for me, but uh, now for me, everything was all about black, black, this, black, that. And I started diving into the whole white man's fault and I just started spiraling out of control with it. I was taken by it. Nothing was my fault. It was all the white man all this time. Who would have thought? It was always the white man this time. And now I have an excuse for everything in my life. So did most of those people that you were around, was the United States a bad place to be? They wouldn't say that, but, you know, we would say well, the way things are today is because of how this country started. We've never gotten a fair shake. But yeah, here we are in a movie by a black man shooting a movie that's a multimillionaire. We're still sitting here complaining about how horrible America is. Yo. But the biggest thing for people to understand is that we take on other people's perspectives all the time. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do because that's their experience and that per- their perspective. Did you have a conversation with your dad about this? You know, I did. And so I, when I started going to college, I started getting into African-American history studies and just learning about the struggle. That was the whole thing for me, the struggle. And I remember talking to my dad, I can't understand how racist this country is, man. This place is awful. Look what they've done to our ancestors. And people would talk about our founding fathers. My response would always be, well, your forefathers were hanging my forefathers from trees back in the day. So I don't want to hear about your forefathers. And I remember my dad looked at me one day in the yard. It was like, what do you know about any of this stuff or struggle? Because that's not been your life. What do you know about any of it? Just tried to use my education to back them down. But, you know, I, my dad was a very strong, like say stoic conservative. I never knew because we didn't talk about politics in my house. But I was picking up what he was putting down, you know, and it was just this whole you know, Democrats don't want to work and Democrats are lazy. And I was like, what? You know, it was weird to hear him say that because he never really opened up. Yo, but, you know, he just really uh, put his foot down politically when I started going that route. Just talking about how certain people are lazy. Some people don't want to work, but you have people that actually do experience racism in this country. And it gets overshadowed by people that have real experiences because you have people that come up with all these fake excuses for slave uh, or uh, racism and it goes nowhere, you know, and it takes away from real racism. I think that it's so hard, Dexter, because I don't think any of us would say that slavery was a good thing. It was a horrible thing. Um, But I also think we have to understand, unfortunately, through history, every country has gone through this, whether it be the slavery of a black person or the slavery of the Israelites. And I think a lot of it is because we are such a new country. We're the top dog. So people forget that all the other, and again, that's not to justify it. It was horrible. And I do not like it when the founding fathers get such a bad rap, because again, it's a, it was a different time, way different time. It was a different time. And so with our 21st century brains to try to put our thoughts into an 18th century mind, how can you do that? You can't do that as a strong conservative, dark skin. I tell people all the time, especially the black community, we do not own the corner market, the corner on struggle. Right. We are not the only people that have had to struggle. Yeah. Like imagine the struggle that the pilgrims had trying to get over here from Europe. Yeah. Imagine the struggle the people endured on the Oregon Trail. Imagine the struggle of the Native Americans that were here when the Europeans got here. 
there's a struggle is part of the human game to struggle is to be human and the struggle does not dissipate or get greater with your skin color it don't matter that is just part of the human experience and so i hate when people try to outstruggle one another you're like that's dumb <laughs> how about if we see somebody struggling we help them not try to outstruggle them i'm struggling harder than you it's dumb it's a horrible concept i hate and i would never say that I know what a black person experiences because I'm not black, but do you as a black person think there is systematic racism or just racism? You know, I'm not going to say that there's systematic racism, although you can make the thing about living in the day and age we live in, no matter what argument I present you with, I can hop on Google and find you anything to reinforce my argument from that perspective. And if I disagree with it, I can go the other way. Exactly. And show you a hundred different articles that'll completely disapprove your argument, but really doesn't matter. That's why I say everybody's got their own perception and perspective. And I, one thing I try not to do is take away from somebody's, from their experience and their perspective, right. but I also want them to be able to hear out my perspective as well. Yeah. So is it racism? Of course, there was never going to be a time on this earth where there is no such thing as racism. Are there practices within this justice system that are, aren't the best? Of course. But nobody can point to a single law to me where it says black people are not allowed to be out on the street at this time and this day. That does not exist. But that does not mean that there are things that happen in the justice system that are unjust. Tell people the only color that matters when it comes to justice is green. That is the yes. only thing that matters. That's right. I mean, we just had a guy here in Louisville try to shoot and kill a mayoral candidate. And he got bonded out by Black Lives Matter last week after 72 hours. <laughs> you know, so I'm like. If it was injustice in a system, it would be with everybody, but they just, people love to pick and choose these small incidents and try to blow it up and paint the entire country with the broad brushstroke of evil, because we have to look at, this is what makes America great right now. Look at how America started and look at where we're at, where we have you, a white woman from Utah, talking to me, a black guy from Kentucky, you know, this is America and look yeah. at the progress we have made. Do you, as a black man, feel like you have every opportunity that anybody else does to succeed in America? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, so I'm sitting here in my house I just bought. This is like the third house I bought. You know, there's nothing in this country I can do that I can't, that there's nothing I can't do. If I want to get up and just go drive and move, I can. The only person that puts limits on you is yourself, your perspective. And like I said, other people's perspective. You, you take on other people's struggles. And that is the biggest thing I've seen in my life since becoming a police officer. I see so many people that are just grounded in this. My mama said this, and this is what I'm going to believe. The one thing I hate people saying is, well, this is just what we do. This because we've always done it. That's not necessarily the right thing or best thing. Well, how about we start asking questions? Why have we done it like this? Maybe we should change it if we've been voting the same way for a certain amount of time and we ain't got nowhere. Okay. At this point then, are you dealing with PTSD. Oh yeah. What is that like? What is happening in your life? Got back from Iraq and I was on leave and I remember my cousin did something to me. He hit my arm. I just snapped and went black, chased him down the hallway in pain. And I just grabbed him by his throat and I started choking him. And my mother coming up to me, get off of him, get off of him. And I just looked at my mom and it was like, I snapped back too. And she was like, you need to go get some help. You are not the child I raised. From there, you know, it just I just say I ignored just kind of like, oh, yeah, OK, this PTSD thing the Army's talking about. And some people have tried to change it 
and give it a better cuddly name. Like it's not PTSD. It's just PTS. Dude, it really, that, that, at the end of the day, I don't care what you call it. It's the same thing. It's not a disorder. It's a syndrome. It sucks either way. The nightmares and all the other stuff that comes with it. That For me, it has been the biggest part was the numbing of emotions. I just easily detach and go numb. The birth of my daughter in uh, 2013, and I just, everybody talks about how glorious this feeling is holding your kid. And I'm sitting here holding this little thing, looking at like feeling no sort of emotional connection. I tell people it's, for me, it's like a light switch. It's like feelings are on and something happens. And next, you know, somebody hits the switch, feelings are completely off and completely detached. Before we started this podcast, you talked a little bit about how you felt your PTSD coming on in the last little bit. Is that how you feel right now? Are your feelings a little numb? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I tell people it's so weird how I just had a book release. My wife's birthday just struck and I have everything in life I could ever want. I am the American dream right now. I am living it. And all of a sudden one thing happens. It's like you just feel the slow downward spiral. And you start reaching for anything to hold on to, but there's nothing you can do. Does it just and, come out of nowhere? There's nothing that triggers it. It just pops it, up. I, it, sometimes it just pops up. Sometimes it's a specific trigger. I had an argument a couple of weeks ago and it just, something in me just, it just clicked. And I just, even after everything was done and over, I just felt that slow spiral. Even though everything was cool and calm, I felt myself changing. That's why I tell people as police officers and veterans, you you have to see the signs because it, it's not just all of a sudden it starts. There are signs leading down the road. And what we try to do is ignore the signs and be tough. And I tried to ignore it for years. And especially with a lot of police officers now, with me being a police officer here in Louisville and having dealt with the riots the last two years, people don't realize the prolonged exposure to stress. Being in Louisville in 2020 during the riots and protests, it was like being in Iraq and Abu Ghraib. When I tell you that I had those eyes that were following me that wanted to hurt me, that was the same feeling I had every day in 2020 and 2021, putting on my uniform and stepping out the door and then seeing people that want to hurt you, kill you. Isn't they're that crazy this, too? And they're American citizens or America, all yeah. together and they hate you because you have a blue uniform on. A blue uniform. You know, I, the thing that caught me off guard, Tina, was I looked at the George Floyd killing and I looked at the Breonna Taylor killing here in Louisville and I told people, this is tragic either way you look at it. Nobody wins. For me, the George Floyd killing, I thought that was going to unite the entire country because every officer I knew was like, man, that was jacked up, dude. Regardless of the guy's history, him being a fentanyl, what the officer did was wrong. Everybody I knew felt like that. I was like, man, maybe this could be a unifying moment. But what happened is media, Black Lives Matter and all these political organizations wanting more money, power and influence stepped in and they took this narrative and completely changed it to make the police the enemy in this country. And that resulted in myself being demonized, shot at, shouted down. I had some of the most atrocious things said to me. I know, and you did not have any curse words in your book <laughs> until you got to that point because you wanted people <laughs> to understand what it was that our police officers were dealing with every day. Yes, every day. And pardon me, I'm, I'm going to use some of the language if you don't mind. No, that's fine. Let's Go back ahead. up for just a second. You got married again. That marriage mm -hmm. fell apart because you shut down. 
Yeah, I was a broken man and that fell was, in love with a woman that she had her yes. own issues and you don't yes. want to get into it. And that's fine. I understand that you didn't want to get in the book, but all that happened in the middle of all this as yeah. you're becoming a police officer. Yes. Why did you decide to become a police officer? Let's talk about that first. You know, for me, it was a, I never grew up wanting to be a police officer, but I remember going to school for occupational and physical therapy, how my therapist helped me get my life back after being hurt in Iraq. And I wanted to help people in that way as well. But I remember sitting in the occupational therapy office and training like, this is boring. God, this is awful. It's like, I need somebody to shoot at me or something, man. Make me feel alive. I started going to school. I was like, I'm going to do business. And I started looking at all the math. I was like, God, no. <laughs> I looked into doing the feds. But because of that second marriage, I decided not to go federal. And so I decided I was going to go city cop. And, it, and I just remember sitting, watching a commercial for the Louisville Metro Police Department. And it's just like the military. They just show you the cool parts of the job. Guys in their uniform, saluting the shiny gun belts and running and chasing after people. You're a sucker for that Hollywood stuff, aren't you? I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. Oh, talk about gullible. <laughs> oh, gosh. You become a police officer. Yeah, 2009, November 2009, I got uh, hired by the police department, and then I hit the streets in June of 2010 in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And when is it that you meet your current wife, your wife-to-be forever? Before I get to that point, I think everybody needs to understand that my police career started off horrible. The academy, post-academy was the first like couple weeks was great, but it was my first detail after getting through my first phase of street training. And I get a call from the police department at home that my mother, that she had been shot and she was en route to the hospital in Louisville. And I think it's a joke. So I hang up the phone, calls me back again. I'm like, hey, man, stop playing on my phone. This is not funny. And he tells me, Officer Pitts, this is not a joke. Your mother's been shot. And she's en route to the University of Louisville Hospital. And so my buddy gets me in the police car. He's driving like Ricky Bobby through Louisville. And he gets me downtown. <laughs> you know, the smell, I, told, I could still smell the brake pads and just the sound of the tires screeching. I was praying the same prayer, prayer for my mother that I prayed as I was laying on the ground in Iraq. Getting there and looking at my mother laying in the ER in the bed 13. And just her head was wrapped in gauze and it was bloodstained red. And the, she had these brown paper bags on her hands that to is, preserve evidence. That was so weird when you wrote that in the book, because I had no idea they did that. And yeah. your thought is, who did this? Who did yeah, this? That was my mom? first thought. Who shot and killed my mother? I was ready to go on a rampage, figure out who did this. Lo and behold, it turns out, you know, my parents were married for 28 years and had recently divorced. There had been abuse and my mother had left a suicide note. And I never knew, once knew that my mother was struggling with that because she and I, for the last year of her life, had a fallen out over my second wife. But thank God, we were starting to mend our relationship, our last words together on this earth. She, I had hung up the phone after talking to her because I was going to see her the, like, the next day after my detail. But she called me back and was like, you didn't say you love me, baby. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, mama. I love you. I love you too, baby. And those were the last words we spoke. And at age 26 in my police uniform, I had to make the hard choice of taking my mother off of life support because my mother had told me it was so weird it's the same thing with Iraq you see signs but for this one I wasn't looking for signs of suicide that's just not my mother and I started thinking back to all the things she said to me and just started bringing up was like hey if anything ever happened to me do this do that and I'm like why do you keep talking about your own death man mom you're not going nowhere you're going to live forever you're always going to be here and then all of a sudden 
she's gone and my life starts to spiral out of control. That's when I go through the second divorce right at the same time that I lost my mother. Did you know that your mom was being abused, whether physically, mentally? Did you know that they had those issues in their marriage? I saw certain things when I was younger, but it wasn't often. I see my parents slug it out once or twice, maybe in my entire childhood. But that's just an anomaly. The way she described it in the suicide letters, I had not a clue. Not a clue. She probably was hiding that from you, which is so sad. That makes me so sad because she didn't want you to know the pain. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad, isn't it? Trying to protect me. You know, I'm the baby. And I think that's what everybody was trying to do is protect the baby. She ended up hurting the baby more than she protected the baby. Having my sister, who you would think we would have grown closer, but she goes on a rampage. And I've not talked to my sister in 12 years. That you know, took $265,000, ran off, told me I didn't deserve anything. And then she took the ashes. And I have no clue what she did with my mother's ashes. I have nothing. She has all the pictures. But being a man of God, the hardest thing I have had to learn to do in this lifetime is learn to forgive the people that hurt me my second wife, my sister, my father, the people out on the streets I dealt with during the riots and protests. Forgiveness is the ultimate cure to anything you're going through. When did you meet your wife? So me and her actually known each other since seventh grade. And it's so bizarre. If you look at our seventh grade yearbook, our pictures are right next to each other. If somebody was like, y'all two going to be married in the future. I'd be like, yeah, right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we've known each other for years. But when I was home on leave after getting hurt and I just got divorced, I remember I ran into her at the bank and you know her mother had just passed away from cancer in 05. We just had that small interaction. But I mean, I go about my life. She goes about her life seeing her on Facebook one day and she's a strong woman, a guy like she's the ideal Christian. I tell people, not me. I, I don't know what she's doing with me. But I'm a rough, <laughs> rough around the edges, but she's the sweetest can be. Yo, and just posting these spiritual things about God and just started talking. The next thing you know, I'm driving an hour and a half after I get off shift to go see her. And a short time later, we end up getting married and lo and behold, we're going on 10 years of marriage this year and two kids later tell people how, you know, this one's going to work because it's lasted longer than both of the first two combined. So we are on a roll. You start your police career and then do you go to the bigger city or is it to the border patrol? So border patrol. Yes. Yeah. So I was with the uh, Louisville Metro police department from 2009 to 2018. In October 2018, I finally got my chance to live my dream. I'd always wanted to be a Fed. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this, Tina. Okay. I remember seeing the Border Patrol commercial. Like, man, that looks so fun. I hope your wife keeps the TV off in your house because you can't handle it. I used to watch Border Wars. I was like, oh "Oh my God. She's like, if she sees you get interested in something, she's like, Dexter, don't even think about it. Exactly. I I remember we were watching the news one day and it was, we were in a, living in an apartment and they were talking about the border in Arizona. I was like, hey, what do you think about living in Arizona? And she just gave me this look like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but she supported your dream. It was hard, but she said, okay, this is what you yeah. want to do. We'll do it. And at this point you have one child or do you have both? So we had two kids in 2018. I got on a plane and flew down to New Mexico to do the United States border patrol Academy. Your wife <clears throat> supports your decision. You're going to go. She's not excited about it, but this is what you want. Okay, let's do it. And when you get there, it's not what you think it's going to be. Man, I, let me tell everybody this. If you are thinking about joining the Border Patrol. Don't. No, I'm not going to tell you not to, but realize what you're getting into. It. 
that was the hardest training I've ever done. And let me tell you, I've been through Army Infantry Boot Camp, a 32-week police academy. Border Patrol was six months of an ass whooping mentally, emotionally, and just academically. It was tough. I mean, and if you don't speak Spanish and you get there, I mean, every day you're packed out, just constantly something to do. PT sessions are brutal. I was 34 with a half-working arm and three knee surgeries deep. And it was a struggle. I almost quit the first or second week when they were like, hey, your Spanish homework this week, you got to learn the Spanish alphabet. And then the following week, our, one of our Spanish tests was you have to do a felony traffic stop in Spanish. I was like, nah, this ain't working, man. Lo and behold, I was able to knuckle down. I say, I'm stubborn. I'm not talented. Ain't nothing special about me. I'm just extremely stubborn. And my wife will tell you that. And I just gutted my way through this thing. It was the longest six months of my life. And it was the first time I've been away from my children long. When I deployed, I didn't have kids. So I never understood what the guys and girls in the military go through having to leave their family behind for eight, nine, 12 months, 15 months. I never thought about that until I was away from my kids. Like, my God, I grew a new respect for the military guys that have families back home. I had never felt that. And it was probably what made it so long was being away from my family like that my kids. Your wife and your children come out and it's a good life. It should be a good life. Should be. You are bored. Is that right? You're sitting out there for these long hours of time, not doing anything. It's just not what it was cracked up to be. You know, the commercial made it look so much better than what it really was. (laughs) Did you think you were just apprehending people left and right? The traffic on the border ebbs and flows. It shifts east to west all the time. When I was there, it was a time where they weren't getting a lot of traffic. So what they were doing with us was sitting us in the processing room. That is pretty much the jail cells where the illegal aliens that are captured are caught. So you're sitting in this room for eight, nine hours a day in front of a computer. This wasn't in the commercial. It was miserable. They They make you. Yeah. I mean, before you go in, they make you take your gun and put it in this lockbox. That gun's in there so you don't make sure you eat your own gun. Because it is miserable and you got to speak Spanish, not just Spanish, catching people from Pakistan, Africa. I mean, all different languages and cultures and dialects. You don't know. And you got to try to figure out all this stuff and paperwork. People shooting at me does not bother me. People yelling and cursing me does not bother me. But paperwork does. Oh, my God. It gives me so much anxiety. I can't stand paperwork. I mean, I would be driving into work. It was like a 45, 50 minute drive through the desert to get to the Border Patrol station thinking and I hope I just crash <laughs> since I don't have to go to this building today. You felt a lot of guilt because I brought my family here. My wife knows this is yep. my dream. I'm making more money than I ever have. And I hate my job. Yeah, it was awful. I had a buddy that was at a smaller police department just north. And he was like, hey, give my buddy a call. So I end up getting hired on with this police department. And once again, I'm like one of like two or three black guys on the department. And these guys, they love me on this police department. Man, you're going to do good things here. You got a great background. But I just didn't like the way they operated. They treated me like a king, but I just didn't enjoy it. It was something was missing. I remember cutting on my cell phone one night and I saw Louisville and chaos for the uh, protests uh, erupted on May 28th. And I'm just watching my hometown burning to the ground. I'm seeing my brothers and sisters that I served with for eight years that I know are good officers. People are chucking all these bombs at them and just shopping carts with full of wood and stuff on fire, fireworks, throwing bleach bombs and milk at them. And I'm watching it. And what's really stroked my emotions 
the building I worked at down in downtown Louisville, the downtown air patrol building, it's got these giant windows. I patrolled out of that building for four years. And then all of a sudden, I just remember seeing a protester pick up a giant rock and smash that window. And that broke my heart. And I was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, not happening on my watch. Told my wife, we're going home. Everything about Arizona was perfect. I love living there. I love the people. But man, when God ordains you to be at a certain place, you can't run from it. And you I just wanted knew. to be in the middle of that mess. Yes. I was mad they started without me. I'm mad I missed the initial two weeks. But we were talking at work the other night. My buddy's like, we have a lot of officers that are now coming back now that it's calmed down. They're like, bro, you're the only fool that left a job making $100,000 a year to come back and stand here and be here with us in this craziness. What is wrong with you? This is my home. I feel that's a word we don't use enough in law enforcement. It's love. And I love my fellow officers. I love the people I serve with. I love my city. I love my department. Now, they might not feel the same way about me, but I know how I feel about them. And that is what carries me and brought me. And that's what took me through 2020 and 2021 and still through 2022 is love, man. I love what I do. I love my officers. I love my city. We backed up a little bit and then uh, we said we would come back to this. We circled back to what exactly were people shouting at you? What were the profanities, the disgusting, vile things that people were saying to you? On one of my podcasts, I was like painting this beautiful day, yo, like driving around Louisville, got my windows down in springtime, driving down the street. And just like, uh, you know, how they set up Chaz in Seattle. They did the same in Louisville at Six and Jefferson. They set up their own little base camp, the protesters. And I'm just driving by radios, blasting wind, winds in my hair. And I just hear, hey, yo, fuck 12. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was like, oh, hey, oh, they're up. Oh, the protesters, they're out again today. And then next, you know, like we'd be standing on the line. Fuck you, you faggot ass, black ass nigga. You black gorilla looking ass motherfucker. Just stuff like that. Oh, yeah, y'all kill Breonna Taylor. But guess what? We coming for y'all families. We're going to fuck y'all families up too. I hope somebody rape your daughters. It was just the worst things ever. Were these white people, black people, both? Both. We got to this giant debacle on Bargetown Road and arresting this guy and he had a gun. It made Fox News, the picture of me, man. We we had to put hands on this dude. And he got bloody. And they were just buddies like, we're coming for y'all families tonight. We're going to remember this. We're coming for all y'all families getting off that night, going home during the protests and riots, I would be going like 80, 90 down the freeway. It's black outside, not nighttime. I cut my lights off. I'm flying because I'm trying to see if anybody's following me, taking different alternate routes to get home. I go way out of the way to get to the house. And then when I get too close to my house, I don't park at my house. I park like a quarter mile away. And then I walk slowly to make sure that somebody's not following me to try to find where I keep my most important treasure, my family. You can come after me all day, but my kids and my wife have done nothing to nobody. You want to hurt me, come at me, believe my kids out of this. And the whole thing was the threats to our families. That was the biggest thing for me. Just so much said, I mean, all cops are bastards. The only good pig is a dead pig. And, and this is every day. This is a prolonged exposure every day. It's like being on a combat deployment. You're just waiting. Your anxiety's constantly ratcheted up. And then the night we get shot at on September 26 in 2020, it was the day of the Breonna Taylor verdict. We got off the bus. I mean, they said there's a group of protesters down at a uh, first and Broadway. And my biggest fear was, I don't know if a lot of y'all remember the 20, I believe it was the 2015 or maybe 2016 
Dallas police ambush in which a Black Lives Matter march went rogue and they had one guy that went with a rifle and he shot and killed like five officers. And my biggest fear was, man, we're going to get caught in the middle of the open and we're going to get shot and we have nowhere to go. For the whole time we were getting off the bus, we were out in the middle of the open. We had nowhere to go. And I heard that familiar zinc, that zip of a bullet. And I heard a success in the shots. And I'm thinking, it took a minute to uh, register. Hey, I'm thinking it's a pepper ball at first. I'm like, hold up, that's gunfire. And then I just remember hearing on the radio, officers down. We got officers down. Grabbed the guy in front of me. And there was these giant pillars on the, from the overpass behind us. And I just drugged him with me to these pillars. And I pulled out my uh, pistol and I started scanning south to figure out where these shots were coming from. I remember looking at them, putting our two officers that got hit in the back of our pickup trucks and driving them to the hospital. Around this same time, I think it was the week before that in Los Angeles, they had two sheriff deputies that had been shot in Los Angeles. And what the protesters did was they got to the hospital before the EMS ambulance yes. got to the hospital and they blocked the entrance to stop the deputies from getting to the hospital and getting help. And so our mentality was, yo, we got to move. The protesters, they were out everywhere downtown were like, they're going to the hospital. And I can still remember the heavy footing of us running. I mean, we were blocks away and we were hoofing it trying to get to the hospital because we're thinking they're going to do the same thing. You know, but we intercept another group of protesters at that time and we have to take a security halt and deal with these guys. Lo and behold, our guys did get to the hospital in time, man. But the anxiety, I mean, the exhaustion and the whole time, my phone was constantly buzz, buzz, buzzing, 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 ringing. So many people were trying to get a hold of me because news I got out, the two officers have been shot downtown and everybody knows Dex works downtown. And I know my wife was watching the live streams. Even though I told her, don't watch the live streams. So everybody's concerned. And that's just my phone. Everybody I'm with, their phones are going off. We don't have time to look at our phones right now. We got a guy that's out here on the loose that's proven that he's willing to kill the officer. So we're in a security hold, yo. And then once everything comes down and we get a chance, pull out my phone. And there was just too many messages to reply to. I replied to my wife specifically. And that was it. Everybody else's, I got on, uh, Facebook and just made a quick post. I'm okay. Looking the next day, all the guys I work with, that was like everybody's message was I'm okay because we didn't have time to get into a long, drawn debate or talking about what had happened in detail because we still had a job to do. Do you think that that fever pitch has calmed down? It's always been there. It'll never go away. It has calmed down because the money's dried out. The biggest thing I've learned from this entire protest was it was never about justice for black people or black lives matter. Cause I've worked in the hood for years and I see tons of dead young black men and I've not seen one protest in defense of the hundreds of dead black kids I've seen. I've not seen one person from black lives matter come out and say, let's march for these fallen black people. But it's only when somebody's killed by an officer and there's something to be gained from it monetarily you know, that it becomes an issue. It's not gone away. It's still there. It's laying dormant. It's waiting for the next round of money to come in. And it's waiting for the next round of politics because that's what drives this whole thing. It's a political, it's a political thing. It has nothing to do about justice. You know, if we were upset about black lives, we would be saying something about the millions of black kids that are aborted every year. In Louisville this past year, we set an all-time homicide record at 189 bodies, 85% of which are black people, young black men and women. We've had more young black women killed in the city than any other year. This past January, we broke the all time record in January for homicides with 18 homicides in a month. When I started here, we used to get maybe 30, 40, 50 homicides. I've never thought I see 
almost 200 bodies in my city. Wow. I think too, there's a big problem, unfortunately, among black families with uh, the father not being in the home because of the system that was set up that they get paid if the father's not in the home. Great society. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The projects was never meant to be a permanent solution for families. But it has become a family tradition for some. And it's almost like a family curse. There have been generations and generations of people in the same government projects for years that don't change. And when you take a father out of the home, it's a major problem in the Black community, but honestly starting to feel and see like it's becoming a problem in just American society in general. We do not value our fathers. So I think that's sad that they have torn apart the nuclear family. It's not yeah. important anymore. You're stronger if you're not. It's so crazy to me that, like you said, yeah, fathers are definitely undervalued. Yeah, and that was my biggest beef with Black Lives Matter. That was on their official website. One of their goals was to dismember the nuclear family. Now, they've since taken it off, but I have not forgot. that is, They want to tear down the entire system, but this system has kept us free. Why do they want to tear that down? Oh, man. I mean, you know, the usher in socialism and communism, you know, but because it's this utopian society. And then now they're saying, well, we just... Everybody else has done it wrong. We need to get it right. That's very ideologic, but that's not the case. Like, have y'all paid attention to what is going on in China and Russia? All this stuff sounds great in theory. Theories are wonderful. I can give you a thousand theories on what I think could happen and why things did happen. But truth and living in you no know, reality, reality is just south of the border. Where do you think everybody in the world is trying to flee to? See people fleeing to Mexico and Venezuela. Yeah, there are not people uh, that are leaving in boats to go to different countries from the United States risking yeah, their no. lives. I've seen people die in the desert trying to get to the land of opportunity, America. If America was as evil and racist as they try to make it out to be, surely people would not be risking their lives to get here. Other thing is, people don't realize one of the most successful classes of people in America are actual Black people, are actual Africans. Nigerians, man, they are brilliant and they are making it. But you know why? Because there's a difference between Black Americans and actual African Americans. They have different cultural values. Over here in America, our young men, you know, they value, uh, you know, shoes. You know, they value all this material stuff. Over in Africa, I got friends that are from Africa. They tell me, no, 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 we value education. Cool kid in the class is the kid with straight A's, not the fresh new J's. you know and it's and it's so sad but i'm like you know that is the truth and that is reality and one thing i've realized is where i worked at in west louisville i used to see a lot of these young kids come in from africa a lot from somalia and the sudan and chad and i see them make the slow transition where they start to lose their african culture and they become americanized and then they start becoming disrespectful and one day it's hey officer then one day it's hey yo fuck 12 you just see the transition. It's like you owe me something for some reason. Yeah. My husband, he has worked with some Russian people. And I wonder if this is the same way with some of the Africans too, that come here is that they will come when they would work at my husband's place of employment and they would work as many hours as they could because they're like, we get paid for this we no. as much as we want. <laughs> and that was just something new to them that people don't realize that coming over here and being able to work 
and make as much money as you can. That's a whole new concept. And unfortunately, some of our people, and it's affected the Black community, unfortunately, I think in a large proportion is I'm going to let the government take care of me. And what they don't realize is they're stifling their growth where they could be so much more. It's sad. Yes. Well, you know what? As a veteran, I see the same correlation with our veteran community. Like me, I'm disabled 100%. I technically don't have to work, but the VA still allows me to work. And my buddy's like, why do you work? I don't want to depend on the government. So if you look at a veteran that's 100% receiving a check from the government has everything paid for, I'm not going to say that that guy is not a, a bad person, but a lot of the guys I know that are like that, they have a lot of problems. They're not focused. I mean, they drink constantly dwelling on the past and what they've done in the military because they can't go out and get it and earn a living. God made us to work, but if you're just sitting at home collecting a check and you have a ceiling on you, that's your existence. Yeah. You're going to find problems. You're going to find, you're going to become negative. And everybody, all my buddies are like, dude, I can't believe you're still working. I have to work, man. If I'm not working, I become a not a not so good person and I lose focus. And for me, the best thing for my PTSD, no matter what I do, I'm going to have issues. But the best thing I can do is focus on helping other people. So that's why even though I get a check from the government, I still believe in the principles of this country and the principles of Christianity. And I believe in service. And that's why I tell people my last name, the book, I am Pitts. Pitts is personal responsibility, integrity, trustworthy, tenacity and selflessness. And that is why I continue to serve. And that is why I encourage veterans. You might not be able to be a police officer, but continue to serve in one way or another. And that is why I urge all the American people to do, because we have grown so selfish as a country and we only worry about ourselves. And you know what? If your neighbor's house is on fire, you better be concerned because that means your house is going to catch on fire too. What do you tell your children or do you not even really discuss it about growing up black in America or when they come home? I'm sure they've experienced racism at some point. I mean, it, like you said, it's there. What do you tell them? You know that we haven't really had to have the conversation. My daughter's eight. My son turned, he's actually turning six today. My wife told me that my daughter, somebody had said the N word at school the other day. It, lo and behold, it was so funny that just the day before that, I asked my daughter if she had ever heard anybody use the word, the N-word, the dreaded (laughs) (laughs) N-word. You know, and she was like, no, never, no. And I explained to her the meaning of it. And I told her, if you hear somebody use that word, you know what you do? Nothing. Don't get upset. Don't get mad. Because you think there's power for them in your reaction. That's exactly what it is. In my book, I told my buddies about how, you know, how old white lady spit in my face and called me the N-word and I've been called an N-word out on the street. Like, oh, my God, what did you do? It's like I stepped over the dude as he was laying in his gutter and I got in my company car and drove to my really nice house with my beautiful wife and kids. Like, it's a word, man. It, words have no power over you unless you give it power. And that is what I constantly preach to my kids. I preach to them, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And I tell them about the three P's all the time. It's not a president, a politician. Oh, my God. I just had a brain fart. President, <laughs> a politician or a uh, political party that is going to save you at the end of the day. You have to save yourself. They can give you all these laws and rules and all this. But when the morning starts, if you're not getting up and putting on your boots to go to work and make something of your life. You're not going anywhere. Where can we find you on social media? Oh, uh, So on social media, I have a. Uh, 
Instagram. I have a I am Pitts book on Instagram. And so there's no actual pictures in my book. You know, I told no, you I didn't. Not. I was expecting there's not. Pictures. Usually have so like what I, Dexter, there's some pictures <laughs> there. I should have did it for all my Marine friends. I know. <laughs> but no, so I made an Instagram with I am Pitts book on Instagram where I have pictures from the book that I'm constantly uploading in there. So people can kind of get a snapshot of these moments in my life. Then I also have a, I have the Facebook page of the I am Pitts Memoirs of an American Patriot on Facebook as well. And then I also have my own personal website, IamPitts.com, where if you want to get a copy of the book, you can go on there and order. And if you wish to have an autographed copy from oh, my, yes. myself. Can I tell you, Dexter gave me such a beautiful autograph. Thank you so much. I love your words. Oh, no, not a problem. What did, I can't remember. What, what did I say? Something you, about the show, because I love were, the show. You said, Tina, thank you for the support and the opportunity. And thank you for sharing the stories of my fellow brothers and sisters in arms. What an amazing podcast. Keep up the good work. May God continue to bless your future endeavors. D. Pitts. Yes, because that's all true. This is an amazing show. You have a wonderful thing going. Wonderful thing. I love it. That means so much to me. And can I tell you, Dexter, that I know that your mom is so proud of you. I believe that. I I believe that. Absolutely. She is just talking to you right now. You are a good man. And I know that she has got to be so proud of the work that you are doing and how you are standing up for families. What do you want to do in the future? Do you have any goals, different things you'd like to achieve? Do you want your book to become a movie? <laughs> Since you're in no, I mean, if somebody wants to make it a movie, I'm not going to tell them no personally, but the problem is trying you? to find somebody that's a sexy beast to play me. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> That is true. I'm a black guy, but I'm gonna go with Brad Pitt to play my part. (laughs) Put Brad Pitt in blackface. I'm all right. I'm gonna sign off with him. I'm okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't, you know, a lot of people ask me about a second book. This one took me seven years to write. I mean, I tell people I started in 2014, sitting at the Taco Bell at first and Broadway, working off duty, trying to make some extra money. And it took me seven years, yo, but I've got ideals for a second book. So I'm not really putting it out there yet, but still well, formulating it. I'm, I'm about to start on the audio book this month because I definitely got to have an audio book, but uh, just not really sure. You know, I'm, I'm sure God has a plan for me, what he wants to do with it. I mean, the book's selling well, and I appreciate, you know, anybody that's putting it out there, just anybody that's willing to read my story. Thank you. Like, I'm truly appreciative because I, it might sound weird to hear, but I hate reading. I am not a reader. Oh, no, I love an audio book. A pod, good podcast. I can kind of get around and move and do what I need to do while listening. Yeah. I stay pretty busy. I don't have time to sit down and read, but you know, just anybody that, so anybody that takes the time to actually sit and read my book, I am truly appreciative. Well, it was a good book. It was an easy read. I think I read it in two days. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. I, I am a reader. Though, you are a disciplined reader. I am a reader. And once I sit down and get going, I just want to keep reading. Man. And it kept me, I don't want to say entertained. Is that the right word? <laughs> yeah. No, well, that's what I would hope it would be entertaining. Okay. It, can't, it kept me intrigued through the whole book. And you cover a lot. You've been through so much in your life. And it's really inspiring to read that with all the things that you've been through and where you are now. I appreciate that. Tell me, Dexter, what does America mean to you? What does America mean to me? 
man, America means opportunity. Plain and simple. I mean, the Constitution, I mean, all men were were created equal. And America is just the land of advancement. America is the land of evolving. Look at how our country started. My ancestors were brought here in chains. And now look at me. I'm a free man. There is no one that can tell me that I'm because I have dark skin, I'm black, that I'm oppressed. I am nobody's victim. America is the land where we we can't, there's no victims here in this country. You know, there's you're either a predator or a victim, you know, and it's, and I don't believe that anybody should be a victim. That doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to you, but it's how you respond to those things, man. And in America, if something bad happens to you, guess what? You can bounce back. Lord knows I've had my fair share of things that happened to me. And and if you read my book, do not feel sorry for me. Do not cry for me. I am highly blessed. I wake up and I live a wonderful life. Like I said, I live the American dream. This is definitely the land of opportunity, man. America means so much to me. I would do it all again without even thinking about doing it. That's how much I love this country. And I want to pass it on to my kids to love for our country because, you know, America's under attack right now. But like you said, it's, I think it's just part of the growing pains that we're going through as America continues to move forward and find its identity. And America means so much to me. It's the scars on my arm. You know, it's the PTSD and the nightmares that I have all for America. And what I went through with the riots for my fellow American citizens, that they might not like what I do, but I believe in their rights to sit in my face and tell me that they hate me. I'm okay with that because that's America. No, America's freedom. We are one of the last standing free countries in this world right now. Because you look at what's going on in Canada right now, they are becoming a dictatorship. It's just north of the border. We are the last shining beacon of hope in this country. And if the light in America goes out, the light on the the city on the hill is gone. And we can't afford to have that. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I so appreciate Dexter and his candor to talk about these difficult things, things that most people are unwilling to talk about. He loves this country and he is willing to put his voice out there to tell the truth. Thank you, Dexter. Please check out his book on his website. It is a worthwhile read. If you feel this podcast is important for more Americans to hear, you can help. You can do your part. Please share with family and friends. Subscribe. Leave a rating. Make sure you go to the website to sign up for the newsletter. That way you can be eligible for my monthly drawings. Be sure to join me next week. My guest is Atticus Schaefer. You may know him as Brick from the hit TV series, The Middle. We the People, Our American Story, the podcast for Americans who love America.